to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 243. It's with Howard Michael Gould. And I really enjoyed this conversation. He is extraordinarily funny, smart, engaging. Uh, He is a former ad writer, as in commercials. He won Cleo's for his work there. He's a novelist. And I just read his book, Last Looks, which is a mystery novel, and I loved it. It really was great. It's being adapted for an action thriller, so that's exciting. I think that actually comes out, well, actually, who knows when it comes out, because everything is weird in COVID world, but it's scheduled to come out this year. As a television writer, he got his start on sitcoms like FM, Home Improvement, Sunday Dinner, and a show called Cutters. Uh, And then he joined the writing staff of Sybil and quickly became the executive producer and showrunner there. And then he was also the showrunner on the Jeff Foxworthy show. He developed and ran a show called Instant Mom, which was a huge hit and was on Nick at Night. And uh, I went and watched some of those episodes on uh, the pay-per-view sort of thing that you can do. And I really enjoyed it. It was quite a fun show. The acting is phenomenal. Um, He co-wrote a screenplay for Mr. 3000, which is a sports comedy film that starred Bernie Mac and Angela Bassett. Uh, He wrote and directed the 2009 film The Six Wives of Henry LeFay. He wrote a play called Diva, which is about a one-time movie star who gets her own sitcom and proves difficult to handle. Shocking, I'm sure. Uh, And uh, I have not seen that, but it's on my list of things to see. But anyway, uh, he and I had a great talk. We talked about all sorts of things, and his career is fascinating, the arc of it and where it's headed still. Um, I was introduced to him through our mutual friend, Russ Woody. Uh, Thanks, Russ. And Russ continues to bring me really fascinating folks. So I'm I'm real tickled about that and that Howard took the time to to say hello and and talk with me. So something I learned during my uh, two-week vacation is that it's not uh, on the winding road. It's it's a wending road. What? Wending road? W-E-N-D-I-N-G. Uh, that's not what the Beatles say. They say a long and winding road. I'm very confused, but it's true. I looked it up. It's wending. Wending its way down the whatever. Use it in a sentence. This is not a spelling bee. I'm just still flummoxed by the whole thing. Although I don't know how it was that I know the word flummoxed, but not the word wending. But there you have it. That is public school education in a nutshell. Okay. In other news, social media for Hey Human is on uh, Instagram and Facebook under Hey Human Podcast. I myself am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Susan Ruthism, and that's S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M. If you want to know more about me personally, go to SusanRuth.com and you can sign up for the mailing list. I send out mailers about every quarter, so I will not make you crazy with too many emails. Unless you think for a year is a lot, and then don't don't sign up because that will be your barrage about for a year. Um, my music is on iTunes under Susan Ruth. I have four records up there. Always threatening to make another album. Haven't done it yet, but you will be the first to know should I do that. There's merch on the HeyHumanPodcast.com website through a very secure storefront. So if you are wanting some cool Hey Human t-shirts or pens or, well, no, I, I take that back. I don't think there's pens on there, but tote bags and pencil cases. 
to put your pencils in that I didn't give you or sell to you. Uh, and that's all there too. And some artwork, things like that. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes, please, or wherever you get your podcast. But especially if you're on iTunes for your podcast, please rate and review there because it makes a huge difference to podcasts. It helps them get pushed up in the algorithms, which is a big deal. Um, again, I mentioned heyhumanpodcast.com. On there is a links page. Every episode has information about each guest, what we talk about, books that they've written, articles we talk about, things we talk, you know, all that stuff. It's all there on the links page. And I think that's about it. I want to thank everybody and say Happy New Year 2021. Um, I'm recording this on... <laughs> January 6th. It's been a very weird day. Um, they stormed the castle. And uh, yeah, I don't need it's just mind boggling all of it. But that is not what you came here for. You came here for a good conversation. And darn it, that's what you're going to get. So without further ado, I bring you this episode. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Hello. How are you? Good. <laughs> Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I hear you just fine. Wonderful. Ooh, I already like your office there. <laughs> it's funny. I get these compliments on it. I never thought so much of it except. <laughs> what is that in the corner with all the faces? That is the New York Knicks of 1973. Okay. And it was the team I was the most emotionally attached to in my whole life. And I actually had that poster out of, it was like the middle of, it was like a fold-in in New York Magazine. Yeah. I was 10 years old and I had it on my wall for years. And then I forgot about it, you know, to, it had like creases yeah. in the middle and staple holes and stuff. And then I saw that online as a lithograph. And and my wife got it for me for my birthday. Aww, that's so, so sweet. Yeah. yeah. I love good. it. Well, this, welcome. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. This is just going to be audio, right? Yeah, but we can see each other. But we can um, see each other. yeah, that's good. Yeah. Would it be yeah. better if I use my earbuds? Will we? Will you hear me better? You think? I don't know. We can try it. See Let's what try it. You tell me what you like. <laughs> I've listened to a few of your podcasts. I really like it. Oh, thank you. I think this is it. There we go. How's that sound? That sounds good. Okay, good. We'll do that. Then. Oh, I think, yeah, that's definitely more clear. All Which right, good. Did you uh, watch or listen to? Sorry. Listen to. I listened to Russ, of course, okay. first. I listened to um, the guy who grew up as a Jehovah's Witness recently. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I listened to um, the anonymous policeman. Mm, interesting. That was yeah. good. That was really good. Yeah. yeah. One other, and I can't remember what it was, but I've been listening walking around. It's, oh, thank you for listening. It's not, what made you start doing that? Uh, I was beginning this. to give up hope uh, uh, that humanity was just, that we had no hope left of, of connecting ever. Mm -hmm. I was really upset and I was trying to think of what I could do to make a difference in the world where how to connect people or even people that by all intents and purposes, you would think you have nothing in common with or no reason to listen to, which of course there's plenty of those kinds of people out there in the world. Um, but to remember that that they they came up through their own humanity the way we come up through our own humanity, you know, and that there are common moments. Um, because I don't think we can fix a lot of the problems that we have mm -hmm. until we are willing to acknowledge the fact that 
we too could have been that person or yeah. have the capacity to be that person. So, which is why uh, I'm the one in, in my first year, I interviewed a grand dragon in the KKK. Wow. Super intense. I went to his house and uh, had a quite an interesting conversation with How him. How did you even find him? It took a while. I had to, you know, I knew a guy, I knew a guy, I knew a guy eventually. And I lived in Tennessee and, you know, birthplace of the clan is there. In yeah. So uh, it took a little bit of time, but uh, found him and asked if he would be willing to, to be interviewed. And he said, sure. And so I went to his house, which was freaky. You know, I was scared because of lots of reasons, but uh, yeah, went there and did the interview and came home. Wow. Okay, I'm going to find that one. And yeah, it's episode number 30. Okay. Yeah. I'm writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> so I can find it easier. Yeah. Well, Howard Michael Gould, welcome to Hey Human. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And we, of course, have the mutual friend in Russ Woody, friends, friends yeah. of all. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love He's him dearly. Sort of sneakily popular. Oh, yeah. Right? Because he, 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 he would never admit it. <laughs> Oh, but everyone loves him. Oh, he's lovable. He's yeah. so lovable. He's actually my, introduced me to to quite a few of my guests now. Oh, that's great. Which has been wonderful. Yeah. I think right. of him as huh. my crazy brother, I call yeah, him. Yeah, I would yeah. say that's appropriate. Uh, yeah. His his episode was, I thought, hilarious. The wine was pouring, yeah. for sure. <laughs> a lot. Pour a glass to keep up. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was a nutty time. It was like, it was yeah. a good time. So I've been, you are many things, screenwriter, director, uh, playwright, author, um, director. I'm sure I'm missing something. And you had a, a life as a showrunner, a showrunner and a life as an advertising person. Advertising man. Yeah. Back a long back time ago, a million years ago. Yeah. Well, let, let's start a million years ago. You grew up in New York. I did. And what, uh, what was childhood? Uh, lots of creativity or more? structured uh, oh that's an interesting question very traditional very safety first i mean there, there was no i mean my my parents were my mom especially were creative people and they loved the arts but they never looked at that as something that one really did you know so uh I, when i wanted to be a writer you know what i i worked um summers a couple of summers at a camp for the arts in New, uh, New Milford, Connecticut, and wrote my first play there, and I got the bug, and I was 17, and it was between the year between high school and college. And uh, when I decided I wanted to be a writer to my dad, who was an accountant, I mean, they both grew up very poor, I should say, so there was sort of a grounding here, you know, like, uh, how do you get yourself out of that? My dad became a CPA and took the brave step of starting his own firm and all, all of that. My mom was a teacher and she was actually offered to be the first woman principal in New York City. But she had just found out she was pregnant with me. And so she didn't do that. Yeah, um, I had to ruin everything. <laughs> yeah, that was the first time I screwed everything up for somebody, not the last. No. But when I decided I wanted to be a writer to my dad, that was sort of like one step up from actor, which was one step up from bum, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there was no support for that at all. Um, How did you but that, it ended that, up working well. 
I just kept doing it. And, and they, they'd sent me to, you know, I grew up, to, we went to, first we were in the, in the city, in the public schools, and then in Westchester. And I went to, a, 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 I think of it as a very unspecial public school in, in Westchester County, but I got into Amherst College, which was, to me, kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and sort of important, especially to my dad, that we, you know, that he sent us to whatever the best places we could get in and wanted to go. My sister went to Yale. Um, but here I come home the first Thanksgiving saying I want to be an English major. And we had a big fight. And my dad said, uh, in the course of this fight, what are you going to do with that? Open an English store and sell words? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it was bad. <laughs> It was a great question. And then what was really great was so then I backed into, we can go back over this if you want, but we, I backed into a, a, a job in advertising and did that for a few years. And then, uh, and, then, and then when I got my first episode of something out in LA, I flew out, I wrote the episode and it went really well. And I got offered one thing after another um, immediately. And I had no idea like what the money was in this. I just knew it looked like fun, you know? And I called my dad and I said, nine year callback. I said, pops, you're not going to believe what words are going for out here. <laughs> I love it. And uh, when, when the time came and the accountant said that I needed to incorporate, you know, that the money comes through a corporation. I don't know if people know this is a big boondoggle and it shouldn't exist, but it's how everybody does things out here. Yeah. Um, I named my corporation the English store. <laughs> I love this. And my dad, being a CPA, was doing the taxes for the English store <laughs> in the Fantastic. end. And to his great credit, he told the story to anybody who'd listened. So. That's brilliant. I yeah. love that. Did, yeah. did the fact that you first went into advertising placate him a hair? Yeah, I think that says it pretty right. <laughs> it, I mean, he was surprised. I was surprised because advertising, um, it's really funny to think about this now because it was 1984 when I graduated from college. And it's really weird to think about how much closer that is to the Mad Men years than it is to now, right? I mean, it's just strange, but there's still those great big agencies and it was Young and Rubicam. And um, the way it usually worked was you'd have to put together a portfolio. You'd have to really want it, just like being in show business. Um, you had to put together a portfolio and take it around and hope somebody would give you a shot. But somebody at Young and Rubicam had this, uh, this strange idea that there were probably some creative people uh, at top schools who didn't really know what they were going to do with themselves once they graduated. And they just went to a handful of schools and, uh, and the CEO of Y&R Young and Rubicam um, had gone to Amherst and was a trustee. So they always went recruiting there. And without me ever writing an ad or wanting the job at all, they, on the basis of a play, gave me this job, you know, and, and gave, and that was the idea was that instead of um, going to college to study advertising and getting a degree and doing all that work, that they just find a few, you know, somebody from Harvard, somebody from Amherst, somebody from a couple of schools and throw you into like a six-week training program. So instead of you taking a course for a semester on media buying and like how they decide where they're going to run your commercial for Jello, uh, that they would just bring in the head 
of media buying at the biggest agency in the world, just upstairs. And he'd come down and talk to you for an hour and that you'd learn everything you needed to know in that hour. And, and they do that kind of thing for like six weeks. And then they gave, uh, you know, I remember it was a princely salary of $16,000 a year plus overtime. Wow. You know? And they would just give you the worst coupon ads or radio commercials or whatever. I can and see so, that the final quiz would be like, uh, all right, now, would you do plop fizz or plop plop fizz? <laughs> and if you guessed plop plop fizz, you got the job. <laughs> it was kind of like that. It yeah. Was, yeah. And I hated every minute of it, advertising. Why? You won three Cleos. I won three Cleos. I did for, for Dr. Pepper. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. All three were for Dr. Pepper? All three were for the first two were Dr. Ruth's first two commercials. Does she even mean anything to you? I love You're so Dr. Young. Ruth. I oh, love good. Her so much. I just good. watched her documentary. It's, it's I so hear cool. that's great. Yeah. I should it's watch that. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's funny. I've worked with so many famous people now, but I, I never had an experience like walking two blocks in New York City with Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Like You're the so lucky. cabs would stop and the guys would roll down the window and yell to her. They just, she was so beloved. She's a badass um, too. As she was, you know, a sniper for God's sakes. Did you know I, that? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Little four yeah. foot nothing. I know, I know. So she had never done any commercials. And we just, a guy named Vic Levin, who had gone to Amherst the year before me and ended up coming out here and doing really well in Hollywood, actually himself. It was the only thing we ever worked on together. And um, just as a, as a, they said, would you guys do a radio campaign? And just as a joke, I said, what about Dr. Ruth for Dr. Pepper? And Vic said, why not? And we wrote these commercials with people calling in with their soda problems. Like, uh, hi, Dr. Ruth. Um, I've been fortunate to have diet soda with many attractive women, but I always seem to finish my soda a little too quickly. You know? oh and, then, and then she would Amazing. give advice, you know, That's and so good. It, it was all like that. And, and she loved it. And it was great. And it was really fun. And then they, they, they won two Cleos and then they got forced off the air by the National Federation for Decency. Which also made me kind of proud. Yeah, I'd be proud of that also. Yeah, that was like the moral majority years yeah. and just they hated her, you know. I so, what you yeah. do is you open the Coca Cola and you squeeze <laughs> the straw very gently now, gently. <laughs> if it's fizzing, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much like that. She was, she'd always ask, like, if whatever anyone asked, the first thing she'd say is, First, I have a question Do you use ice cubes? <laughs> Too many young people don't use ice cubes. You know, it's like, it's, it's great. She just loved it. So, so great. I think was my, that was a much better Dr. Ruth. Mine was somewhere between Dr. Ruth and a Skeksis, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny is, so my grandmother was from, my grandparents were from Germany. My mom was actually born in Germany and was a refugee, came over when she was two years old. But uh, my grandmother, who to me had an indistinguishable accent from Dr. Ruth, thought that Dr. Ruth had the funniest accent in the world and would giggle whenever she came on the radio. Really? <laughs> yeah. But they, oh, to me, hilarious. they sounded the same. It was a riot. So funny. Yeah. I, when, um, okay, firstly, before we move on to you, what the hell is Dr. Pepper? I've never really, I've been drinking it. I don't really drink soda pop anymore, but my whole life I've had Dr. Pepper and I can't figure out, is it a cherry flavor? Is it a caramel flavor? I, yeah, it's, it's all those things. It is a mystery. Does, it's does a carefully know <laughs> what it is. No, but where did you grow up? Seattle. 
Oh, okay. Mostly. Yeah. Because huh. it's vi- life in uh, other countries mostly, and but Seattle's where I grew up. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's a very uh, popular drink in the South, in Texas, where it's said so they're headquartered in Dallas. And you know what? When you would go to meetings there in the morning, they would serve you hot Dr. Pepper, like other people drink coffee. They would serve it to you hot in a coffee mug, and you, you had to sit there and drink it. Yeah, hot Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Some, that's one part disgusting. disgusting. One it part is. sounds pretty medicinal at the same time. <laughs> so, where did this doctor get his degree, or her, for that matter? <laughs> they tried, in, not in my day, but in the, in the early days, they tried to sell it as like half-assed medicine. They, they, they used to sell, the, there was a logo of a clock that would say, drink it at 10, 2, and 4. Oh my God. Like they're trying to get you to drink it three times a day, but that's for health. <laughs> and that didn't even have the cocaine in it that the Coca-Cola had in. I lived no. in the South for a long time and uh, for 13 years. And if you wanted a soda pop, you had to say, I'll like, I'd like a Coke. And then you'd wait for the server to say, do you want uh, Coca-Cola? Uh, do you want Sprite or, you know, or whatever the things that they had. Coke. Thing Coke meant Coke. all of that. It meant all the soda pop. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I never knew that one. And it's the first place I ever went to that had a, um, a cake made out of soda pop. They would make cakes. Um, I'm trying to think of it. It's soda pop cake. It was, I think it was just called Coca-Cola cake, which is just basically a fluffy sugar pile, you know? <laughs> it's crazy. But anyway, <laughs> so back to you. What was the play you wrote when you were 17 about? Oh, that's a great question. Nobody ever asked that. Um, it was the first play I wrote was, um, it was, it was, uh, uh, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was a, a boy and girl teenagers having a conversation, sort of dancing on the edge of whether they were going to become a couple. But it played, I don't remember the order, it was in three scenes, it was the dialogue and then another actor playing what was in his mind. And then the same dialogue, second scene, exactly the same from those two actors, but what was playing in her mind and the disconnect and then picking it up going forward. That's very the third astute scene. for a 17 year old to conceptualize that. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. I don't and know. The, the play that got you the job. What do you know? What the play was that? Oh, uh, the play that got me. You know what? Everything great that happened, every career change that happened for me, happened off of a play. Like it was a play that got me the job in advertising. It was a play that got me my TV jobs, and it was a play that moved me from TV into movies. And uh, you know, all just yeah, just written randomly. But okay, so the first one of those was. It was about, so now I was 20, 20, 21, in senior in college, and it was, it was about a gastroenterologist in Westchester County who people come to believe is a Jewish gastroenterologist, who people, the synagogue comes to believe is the Messiah. Okay, <laughs> I love it. I don't even remember how that worked. I don't remember why they thought that, but it had to do with synagogue politics over putting down a certain kind of driveway and somehow in the fuss over that um, somebody misreads something that happens and they come to think he's a messiah 
fascinating. <laughs> and I directed it and put it on in, in, in at college. And uh, yeah, off of that, I get I the the way the story was told to me uh, at the meeting where they were decided. So they 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 narrowed it down to like a dozen of us candidates and brought us to New York all on a day, like a competitive day where we would go around from you know advertising big shot to big shot and do like 15 minute interviews or half hour interviews each with several of them. And then all of the interviewers got together in a room and argued out which four of the 12 of us they were going to put in this program. And the way it was told to me was that this guy who liked me a lot just said, I'm going to open up a, his play and read a page at random and read it and people laughed and they hired me. Oh, it's fantastic. It's a job I totally didn't want. Oh, and you asked like why I hated it. So I hated it. I got there and the 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 first thing they told us about was this new product, Advil. Isn't this weird? Doesn't this sound like to you probably Advil's been around forever? But yeah. this was like this new thing that was about to come out in 1984, 85. And they were so proud of what Young and Rubicam, what they had done to sell this because they, they realized they had a problem. They had all these sales. I forget what the company was that made Advil, but they makes Advil. They had all of these sales projections and figured out what they were going to be able to do. And then all of a sudden, the as they put it to us when they told the story, the goddamn FDA said yeah. that you only need to take one of these, not two. And we were assuming that it'd be like aspirins and Tylenols, and it was always take two. And the FDA said, you only need one. And all of a sudden, the sales projections were cut in half. And this was the accounting executive telling us this on the very first day in advertising. And she says, so, but we stepped in, we at Young and Rubicam, we came up with this great idea, which is give lots of them away for free. Go to airports, go to train terminals, go to everywhere where people travel and have people give away a little packet of two Advils that says, take this, and this is the new thing to take instead of aspirin. And people will just assume that you need two of these. And sure enough, we came out with it and our market research shows people take two. And that's what advertising can be. And I sat there with my liberal arts degree going, what the hell? This is the worst thing in the world. This is what they're proud of is over-medicating yeah. America, right? Absolutely. Oh yeah. That's the same with the plot, plot, fizz, fizz story. The August are you only need to do one. But the, the, a woman came up with the advertising of doing plot, plot, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is because of the cadence. But you only need to do one, but because the, the, the song had two, it sold like, it always sold Double. with people doing both of them. Yeah. That's, wow. Isn't wow. that wild? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's no surprise to you because that's advertising. That's all that they want to do, right? No. And sure enough, the first three assignments they gave me there were, let me see if I can remember, um, pudding pops. Do you remember those? Jello pudding pops. Sell that as a health food made with the wholesome goodness of real milk. Actually, made with the wholesome goodness of real jello pudding yeah. and they'd show a, a, a glass of milk a glass of milk yeah. <laughs> so this Subliminal. is yeah so yeah. health food um yeah. second one was at&t as the company that really cares about you and the third was Jamaica. They had the Jamaica tourist account, Jamaica, which had been undergoing riots and stuff. And they were, so we had to sell Jamaica as a placid island inhabited exclusively by white people. Oh, Lord. There wow. Oh, my gosh. I always, I, I have not ever seen Mad Men. I'm the only person on the planet, but um, I know about, 
you know, the idea that they're all smoking and drinking their yeah. highballs and martinis and things like that. Um, but you were saying you got into it sort of just post that. I think that was like, the yeah, that was, it's just the eighties already. Yeah. And it, you know, no, it was just cocaine. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. There was some of that. Yeah. I yeah, mean, not, yeah. not, not in front of me, but I can tell you the people I know there was, and there was plenty of sexual harassment too. Oh, I'm um, sure. And in fact, so my wife who I met there, um, who was multiply harassed, you know, there in, in ways sort of common to the eighties that almost looked quaint, you know, it wasn't anything right. like, you know, the, the worst things that we know, but that you couldn't get away with now, but we couldn't have been dating. Oh, right. In office. So this, yeah. 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 Is she an advertising person as well then? She was, she, she went through all, all those hoops. Like she came from, you know, she went to Ohio state where they didn't go recruiting for him. Mean, she had to do all of these hoops. And, and in fact, got a job there as a secretary and was the first secretary to cross over into being a copywriter and into that training program. Wow. Cause that was not an acceptable career path. Cause they'd only think of you as a secretary, you know? So, right. so she sort of broke down some barriers and then got there and kind of hated it too. And then, you know, when I got my job out here, she was, she hated New York as well. She just, she, you know, was really drawn to it, but, burned out on it pretty you know mm -hmm. it lost it it wasn't that charming in the 80s in new york yeah. really yeah yeah i i like it i miss it but she didn't like it and and when i got my job at on a show out here and everything happened she was very happy to come out here and, and well, she didn't go into advertising which was your first that. show in la as a writer i came out to work on uh, to write an episode of a show called fm that only went 13 episodes, but was very, very good, done by Alan Burns, who was one of who was my mentor in the business, who was one of the co-creators of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I mean, he was really one of the legends of the business in the 70s. He did that. And when all the other Mary Tyler Moore people left to go to Paramount and do the show Taxi, he stayed at MTM and did the Lou Grant. Uh, series, which nobody remembers now, unfortunately, but was a really big deal at the time. So that was um, her boss. Yeah. That was her boss. And they yeah. spun him off into a drama. Do you even know this? They did a drama that ran for five years and won more Emmys than any drama had ever won up to that point. Was so she it was in that as well? Or was no, she, she wasn't in that. He, oh. it, was, it, was, it was him. His show. Him, his show as him moving to LA and being the editor of, a, of a, an LA newspaper, like a rival paper to the LA Times. Was it and called so Lou Grant? It was called Lou Grant. Okay, yeah have this vague recollection of that for some reason yeah. yeah so he was a really big deal and he gave me an episode and he did that show with a guy named dan wilcox from mash and uh also Bert metcalf show. from mash so you know these were three guys who were all about twice my age and uh and i didn't realize what a big deal it was because they only got ordered for they did a pilot. They got an episode, an order of four episodes, and they said to me, "I could write one of them," which is a heck of a leap of faith for a guy who'd never written anything for TV before. But that was off of a different play that I had written. <laughs> I yeah. So I there was a little interlude here between advertising and and that where I I I saved up my money in advertising, and I quit to be a real writer. Yeah. You know, and I was just going to live in Brooklyn and just write every day. I thought this was 
It's like the dream, you know? And that lasted about four months, five months before I got the, and I did a couple of plays off, off Broadway. Oh, cool. And yeah. And off of one of those, uh, I got this uh, job to come out and write one episode of this show called FM. And I ended up writing half of them. It went for 13. I wrote six of the remaining to F of the 12 after the pilot and, uh, and rewrote another one uncredited. And um, the show didn't go, but Alan and Bert Metcalf, who was the executive producer for most of the run of MASH, they asked me to go into business with them as a third partner, basically, to do development. Wow. That's and that was like grad school. It was really a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't believe it, you know, yeah. when it happened. I'd say you say off, off Broadway. I always think, like, I wonder how many offs you can go. Is it like Google? Where, you know, <laughs> off, 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 off Broadway. You know, you click on that one and it's just a guy in the garage, you know, holding a mop, you know, doing a little clean or something. There, there are only a maximum of two offs. Okay. <laughs> and it's, it's, um, it's based on the size of the theater. Okay. Did you know I, that? I didn't. So, yeah, 500 in New York City, 500 seats and above is Broadway. Even if it's not on Broadway, it's called Broadway. And 100 to 499 is off Broadway. And 99 or fewer is off, off. And actually where I did it was at the, the what the heck is it called? West Bank Cafe Downstairs Theater Bar. You know Louis Black? Yeah. Right? You know who that is. Yeah. He was the like the literary manager. <laughs> so the, my big, my big theater break was Lewis Black calling me up and saying, you can do your play here. And they'd give you a time slot and you'd have like a three night run, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, either at 7.30 or 10, something like that. They would do two shows a night and you'd have either the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Lou Black would get up and do five, 10 minutes of stand up to introduce your play. And then you did this play in this, uh, this basement under the West Bank Cafe restaurant. Oh and that God. was my first couple of plays. Yeah. And so the guys in LA happened to be at that show? Oh, no. Okay. So how that happened, gosh, it's, it's like, it's, I'm really like dusting off memory here because yeah, this is so long charmed. ago I now. love it. Uh, yeah, it, it's I mean, funny though. Meets uh, luck, you know, it's that opportunity at the intersection of, of timing and having the talent, obviously. You know, I always say to people who want to do this, that it's, it's success in Hollywood is a combination of luck, talent, and hard work. And you can only control one of the three, you know, because yeah. yeah, talent you got or you don't and luck, yeah. you know. You can't really, but so what happened, I'll tell you what happened was I was, I, I, I made a, a little niche for myself in advertising, in radio. So all three of those Clios were for radio, two for Dr. Ruth and one for the campaign I came up with to replace her when we got four stuff the year by the Federation for Decency. But I, there was a, at, at the time, radio advertising was really big in, in New York and LA and uh, funny radio commercials. Because we don't really have that now, but it was it was a big thing then, and there were a couple of um, places that did them, and and usually what agencies would do is they'd farm it out to specialists in radio. There was a place out here, the Radio Ranch, and there was a woman named Joy Golden back in New York who used to do all this stuff. 
but because I could do it, the agency would give me those. And another writer who I mentioned, um, we worked together on the Dr. Ruth thing. But uh, I got to know all these great voice actors. And one of them was an actress named Lynn Lipton, who had been in Second City and had been sort of a, a you know, a, 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 an up-and-coming comic ingenue in, in TV. And and then left it because of a relationship and just sort of decided she was in this very comfortable life, making a lot of money doing these radio commercials because that was very lucrative for the actors. And, and as that relationship was unraveling, she wanted to get back into doing this, but she didn't really know how. And she was in a TV commercial campaign for a... A st- this is such a crazy story. The, this this big store chain called Caldors, which was like a regional Walmart kind of thing that was going out of business. But she was she had this very popular campaign for it, and they would get all these letters saying, um, "You guys should have a TV show." It was like a couple, you know, and there would be some like cute little fifteen second vignette, and then it was about that you needed to get light bulbs, and then they'd have a sale on light bulbs, and they'd show you the light bulbs and how cheap you could buy them, and and they'd get the, the, all these letters saying you guys should have your own TV show, and it's just like just a bunch of deluded people, three completely deluded people got together at a mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. Me, this actress who had asked me to write her TV show that she was going to say, and the, the outgoing CEO of the Caldors chain who, you know, got his golden parachute for millions and millions of dollars as he sold his and thought, I'm going to go into TV. And I know this actress who's in their commercials and she's brought this kid, you know, I was 25 or something, who who was winning Cleo's advertising. And we're going to, you know, and if you just write a great script, I'm going to go and I'm going to look Grand Tinker, you know, the 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 biggest people in TV, I'm going to look them in the eye and say, here's your next big show. It was insane. Looking back at it now, it was insane. But I didn't know any better. So I wrote her pilot. And then, of course, that guy couldn't make, get any traction anywhere, you know, because who is he? This is a you know, department store guy or whatever the hell. I mean, they didn't but care my about My God, him. does he have some cheap light bulbs, everyone? <laughs> Lots of them. Lots of them. He's got a, had a whole kitchen full of all the crap that he wiped out of the store before they sold it. And Lynn came out and she knew six or eight people, you know, who were still quite big in the business and wanted to sort of reintroduce herself to the business with the script and handed him, here's the script for me to be a TV star, you know, which was also diluted, you know, cause that's just not how it works. And, but Alan Burns, this guy who'd done the Mary Tyler Moore show and Lou Grant. And do you know the movie, a little romance with Lawrence Olivier? I don't think Watch so. that sometime. It's so delightful. And Diane Lane's first movie, she's like 14. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, he's, this is, tremendous writer and a legend in the business sort of just at the beginning of the end of his peak, put it that way. And she gave him the script and he called me up and said, I don't have any work for you, but this seems talented. And if the show I'm doing goes, then, you know, maybe we'll try out with a script or something. And it didn't, but then there was a writer's strike and I was out doing another commercial 
And both Lynn and my then fiance kept saying to me, you've got to call this guy. He called you. He's willing to talk to you. Call him. And he said to me, I'm just sitting around the house. I'm not allowed to go to the studio because we're on strike. But if you want to come over and talk, you know, and he was lovely. He's just, he's just a prince. He really is one of the just real mentions of the business too. For somebody that talented and that successful, it's just, I didn't realize how rare that was and how lucky I was to have him as a mentor. But I, I, uh, I went over to his house and, and we had a nice conversation. And I said, you know, the thing you read, I like it, but let me give you something that's better if you have time. And I left him this play called Trumps of all things. Of 1988, I left him a play called Trumps, wow. which was about, uh, <laughs> also insane. It was about a young commercial composer, jingle writer, could have been you, um, and he, in an alternate life, who, who gets spotted by a, a sort of um, kind of sleazy, kind of double-talking a uh, commercial music producer who has this idea to um, produce a, this is a crazy idea for a play, produce a musical for a new casino in Atlantic City. And he's going to pair this talented composer with these couple of old ladies who write children's musicals. And if he can get them to write something, that he'll give it to Donald Trump, who he knows. That's what? Just, yeah, who thought? No, 1988. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, and it turns out it's just he's selling air. It's just he's, he doesn't know Donald Trump. He just, you know, it's all BS. And, and I, it's, not, it's not really a good idea for a play. But it was very funny. It's the funniest thing probably I've ever written. Because you're funnier when you're younger, I think. <laughs> I really do. When life hasn't beaten it out of you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And younger people are funnier than me now, and it's okay. But it was the funniest thing I'd ever written, and I left it with Alan. And then I went home and got married. And when we got back from our honeymoon, there were four messages on my machine. The first two were from Alan, just raving about the play. And the next two were from agents, like a lower-level agent and an upper-level agent at, at his agency wanting to sign me. Wow. And... And so I signed with them. And of course, agents don't really get you work. So I didn't, I thought I was on easy street and I wasn't, um, but and I you, kept doing. Did you go with high one or low one? <laughs> <laughs> I started with the low one. Okay. And then when I got a little bigger out here, I switched to the high one. Okay. <laughs> and then I left them for bigger agencies. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's an old story. Yeah, and it. I'm no better than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Was it weird trying to readjust um, going from when you're running a play, it's a very, this is where you are in this little box, you know, it's, it's between the people. It, it doesn't really rely on other things, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's that it's what they're saying. Whereas on a television show, you've got multiple places you're going, you've got multiple storylines. Although I, I came in just in, in the world Russ was in and, and uh, stayed in for almost all of his career in multiple camera TV, which is basically like theater, mm. right? You know, you think of any of those Cheers or any, you know, Seinfeld, you've got that apartment, you know, and they're mostly in the apartment. And then now we go to the diner for a little bit, you know, and yeah. then maybe we have a reason to go somewhere else. So it was very like theater, <laughs> okay. but then it's all there. You put, yeah. you put the several cameras and you play a long scene. 
yeah. you know, or a short scene in Seinfeld cases, but it's Seinfeld's case, but, um, but it was very similar. What was hard was going from theater where I was king of the world to being the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the low guy on the totem pole, but also writing so many episodes, which is unusual when you're new. So when it was your episode, you know, the, do you know anything about the process? Did Russ talk about this at all? Like on the process of writing yeah. is doing a sitcom. And- I mean, yeah, we've all, all, he talked about that a little bit on his episode, but just that group that you joined, the, joined us a couple Sundays back. Uh-huh. That stuff gets discussed a lot. And so you're sitting in a writer's room and, and, you know, there'll be a table re there'll be, you'll, you'll do a lot of rewriting as a group with the showrunner sort of being the ultimate voice. And that's before it even gets read by the actors. Then you'll do a table read and then you'll do another rewrite. Then you'll do a run through and do another rewrite and another run through and another rewrite, you know, one day after another. And so your script gets basically torn apart and rebuilt or even just nicked away at. So like if, if, if I write a joke that ends with, then you take out the garbage, which sounds funny to me. And my boss doesn't like the word garbage, that it has a bad connotation for him for whatever reason says, then you take out the trash and you're sitting there going, that's not funny. And you didn't need to change that, you know? And if it was my show (laughs) and if it was my play, I would not change garbage to trash, but you don't really have a say in that. And when it was my own episode, and this is, I think that every writer goes through this when it's your episode, that's a really painful thing because you, Mm. you work so hard before you turn it in to get it as good as you can. And then people just have at it. Mm -hmm. And because I was doing so well (laughs) that I was writing every other episode every other week was my turn in the barrel again for this. And that was, that was emotionally tough. Do they still, but you still get that written by you, yeah. Yeah. even though it's a, it's a village. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I guess I never really thought about that, that in a room, there's going to be a whole bunch of people adding to it. And then that's like when, as a songwriter, when I get in a room with an artist who probably doesn't know how to write a song <laughs> and my co-writer and I, or I sit there and do all the work. And then they say like, well, oh, well I'm, I don't want to say garbage. I want to say trash. And then they get their name on it. You know, so it's a different, <laughs> it's a different thing. That yeah. is a different thing. Yeah. Is that common? Is, I, I know that's common. I'm asking, but I, I know that's. Yeah. A, yeah. 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 It's pretty yeah. common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In TV, um, I, it's sort of considered bad form. I mean, there are people who do it, but it's sort of considered bad form to to jam your name onto it when you're the boss on a show. Oh, so wow. most most of my career, actually, uh, that I was in TV, I was the showrunner and uh, head writer. And because I went off and wrote very few episodes, but I was the head of rewriting all of them. And because I learned from Alan, who was such a classy guy and never did that himself, never jammed his name in there himself. Uh, my name is on very few episodes. And so as a result, I get very little in the way of residuals because the residuals all go to the person with written by. So you could farm something out as a freelance script to test a writer out and it comes in and it's a disaster. 
and the room rewrites it, or even as I did on that first show, goes off by, you know, somebody goes off by themselves and rewrites it, but they don't put their name on it. And, you know, this other writer gets that hmm. residual wow, that's forever. Fascinating. Yeah. What do you think is the most common mistakes newer writers uh, make in a writer's room, especially in comedy? Oh, um, that's a great question. I think, I think sometimes you can cling to something too much. Like you think something is a better idea than the boss thinks. Not that I ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember one now. I can remember one now when I was working at a Carol Burnett show. And I just knew that there was a more interesting choice than what we were doing. And I must have pitched it 12 times and the guy put up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Carol Burnett show. Wow. Uh, not oh, the original right, Carol Burnett show, but yeah. So I came out here. So, so, so I had a bunch. So this made me hot all of a sudden. Like I came out and I did that. And and that show got an order of four episodes. And then later got a few months later, got an order for eight more. But in that time in between, the company that was doing it, which was a, a legendary company called MTM, which you probably don't know. They did not only the Mary Tyler Moore show and Newhart, but Hill Street Blues and lots of you know, very, very big shows in the 70s and 80s. And they were going through, they they sold out to some British company that overpaid and then it all went to hell. So they didn't have any money to put, it's where Russ started too, actually, oh. earlier than me, years before me. Um, but they didn't have any money to put me under contract. So I was sort of a free agent, but now with the imprimatur of one of the, at the time, you know, real legends of the business. So I had a lot of things to choose from. And the one I chose, and this is sort of typical of everything I did the rest of my career. When I look back at this, I, 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 I always chose the most interesting thing rather than the smart thing <laughs> to do. So they were more obviously um, built for success shows. But this guy who had, Matt Williams, who had, who had created Roseanne, the Roseanne show, and got fired halfway through the first season. Now I had this giant deal at Disney. And the first thing he was doing was a show with Carol Burnett, her comeback to TV, where they were going to do a different play every week. It wasn't going to be a regular cast of like Harvey Corman and Tim. It wasn't going to be like that thing. It was going to be uh, an original play. They built a proscenium in the, on a soundstage and they were going to have a whole new cast every week. And some weeks would be a drama and some weeks would be a naturalistic comedy and some weeks would be a supernatural comedy. It could be anything. And I went, oh, let me do that. <laughs> you know, that sounds interesting. And and it, it was it was completely misbegotten because because it sounds it, pretty heady. <laughs> it was very heady. And Matt, God, God love him. He he went on those same guys went on to do Home Improvement, which you know, and you think of Home Improvement, which I also worked on. I went back to work for them later. It was the same episode every week. Basically, mm -hmm. you figured out it was exactly the same yeah. formula. Carol Burnett on that show, those guys couldn't make a decision about anything. So you'd be there after a run through would go badly and they, you know, sort of be despondent and somebody go, well, what if they're all aliens? You know, okay, let's rewrite it as aliens, you know, and, and you were just shooting the last first draft. So wow. after two weeks, they shut down and, and decided to do like a sketch show with a cast of regulars, <laughs> like her yeah. old show. Yeah, which of course, 
Cabernet is genius at for sure. Yeah. I love New Heart Show. That was a great show. Best season finale of all time. <laughs> which which one are you thinking of? The um Bob the, Newhart show? Which New Heart show? Because you know he did the say are you where, I'm in Vermont. That when he wakes up when he's when he I was there. The, the new one where he wakes up and he, where he wakes up and it's Suzanne Plachette. Yeah. I was there. No way. My wife and I were just talking about that. So can I tell you something? This yeah, is geez. this is I this is ah this is as mean as I'll get on this show. This is on, on this podcast. Okay. It's not, it's not really mean, but you know, Suzanne Plachette was so brilliant on the first series, right? You've, you've seen that, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. And then Mary Fran was delightful, but not the comic talent Suzanne Plachette was. So Newhart was being shot on that lot where I, you know, where I was working, MTM, right? Both Newhart shows were at this company, MTM. And the the standing joke in the writer's room, because there had been all of those great, like, wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with the lights going on and off scenes with Newhart and Suzanne Plachette. And the there was a standing joke for years in that writer's room. Now, God, I'm telling stories from so long ago, because you, you're remembering this, but that was... 1989 or 90 this is 30 years ago so but there's a standing joke for years in that writer's room that um they would end the series with <laughs> he wakes up in the middle of the night turns on the light and there's Suzanne Plachette in bed with him and he says Emily I had the most terrible dream I was married to someone else and she wasn't funny Oh, <laughs> and the writers tell that story all the time. It was like the standing joke around the lot. And so everybody knew that was hilarious. So I knew they were going to do the last episode. I was the wonderkind at the company, right? I had just written half the episodes of this thing. And so I was able to get a seat at this taping of this finale. And everybody in there was like a friends and family thing. So everybody knew it. And so when you know, when he turns on the light and it's Suzanne Plachette. Oh my God. There was like this whole other, I mean, you enjoyed it. I love that you brought this up. My wife and I were just talking about this the other night, that, that it was delightful for the audience, but for the people who were there, it was like, oh my God, they're ending with that show. And they went a different way with it. Of course they of weren't, course. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, but That's yeah, fantastic. it was, it was so memorable. Yeah. I actually, my parents um, let me rifle their, uh, LP collection, uh, and I have some Bob Newhart albums. I mean, they, they had a lot of comedy records, like old Second City records, all sorts of stuff. But they had a couple of Bob Newhart. Such a funny, oh, brilliant, button-down mind. Oh, yeah, gosh, yeah, just so funny and so sly about how funny he is. Yes, his delivery, that comic timing, I think, um, was was almost mischievous. So you know the first show too, the yeah. first series where he was a psychiatrist. Yeah. 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 Great. Didn't that uh the woman that played his receptionist just passed away recently? Marsha Marsha Wallace. A couple of years ago. Yeah, I think Wallace. that's where that might yeah. be right. She was great too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a what a life. And you so <laughs> now I know uh, that you and Russ worked on Sybil uh, and he of course yeah. has big words about Sybil show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Did you it have was hard. experience? Oh, well, we, you know, he was, he was my sidekick. I mean, we mm. were, it was, it, you know, it was, it was very difficult, but I'm mostly grateful for the opportunity I got. Cause that was the first time I got to be a showrunner 
myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I took over when we were really behind the eight ball because we had no scripts on the shelves and we the cast all tried to quit. And so they were unhappy and, and we were in fourth place in the time slot. And, you know, this bunch of writers just pulled together and, you know, and, and sort of bailed us out. And the cast sort of appreciated what we did. And we ended up going from fourth to first in the time slot. And we won the Golden Globe that year. And, wow. and, uh, and yeah, that was, and I was with Russ, Russ, that night of the Golden Globes. That was the drunkest I've ever been in my entire life. I'll tell you. <laughs> with Russ, so, it's a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> he was so much. Yes, yes, but he he drove that along. And speaking of recently passed away, there was a moment where he had just written an episode where we needed a cameo at the end. That um, we were having trouble finding somebody great, and the Golden Globes is great because it's all movie stars. Like TV is just a little pocket of it and like hardly any of you can even go, but you know, you're in a room with, and so I see Sean Connery across the room and I say to Russ, I'll give you $20 if you ask Sean Connery to do the, the cameo at the end of the civil episode. And God bless Russ. I turn around two minutes later, he's there talking to Sean Connery. Oh, yeah, he, comes, he, he comes back and he says, he said, no, <laughs> I, I gave him 20 bucks anyway. That's and we so got Kenny great. Rogers, oh, <laughs> who also weird. died this year. Oh, yeah. God, everyone. Yeah. Well, anyway, 2020, huh? Yeah. I'm curious how Instant Mom, how you, did you come up with the concept for that show? No. Okay. No. But you were one of the writers on it. So I, oh, I was the head writer. And so, yeah. uh, so, you know, then I t- had my sojourn of the entire rest of my career. <laughs> I did TV for about 10 years and then I did movies and theater for i i mean i guess the quickest version then we can come back to any of it if you want to talk about any of it but i wrote a play which then mike nichols wanted to do and that was just the greatest thing except that then it didn't happen because it was something stupid but uh, but you know i had him in my life as a mid-career mentor for two three years and that got the attention of the movie business at a time when crossing over wasn't that common like it is now and so i started doing movies and then the crash happened and the business really changed a lot. And, uh, and I, I had, I, so when I wrote this play that Mike was interested in, I I felt like I outgrew these 20 minute sitcom stories was really what happened just on a creative level. I just wasn't interested in the play went backwards. I mean, it was really ambitious Mm. storytelling. And, and so I was doing movies all this time. And then, I was a little, and then I went and directed a movie and got involved with criminals on the financing side. And then that, so that Ooh, ended up a big was. disaster. Yeah. Did you know, they were criminals going in or? No, I knew it in the middle of prep and Ooh. I threatened to quit and they threatened me with a lawsuit if I didn't finish it. So I got made my directing debut under threat of a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> and then the crash sort of wiped out how they were planning to release it. I'm, I'm short-circuiting a, a, har- a horrific yeah. career-destroying story, basically. And then when I came out of the, 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 the mess of that, which took me like two years, like, like this massive bet on myself that I could direct this movie, that, and they all ended up suing each other and fighting over the cut. And so it's, it's out there. I mean, it's, it's on Showtime a lot. It's on Netflix still, I think, but, but in a messed up cut. 
Like it's, it's my scenes out of order. Um, It's called the six wives of Henry Lefay with Tim Allen, Alicia Cuthbert, Andy McDowell, Jenna Elfman, a whole bunch of six other people, you'd know really. And they were wonderful. And it was a great, despite what I just said, the actual making of it was a great experience, but then the post and then really mucking it up was really a nightmare. And I came out of all that and said, okay, I guess I got to go back to work. And it was, it was 2009. It was a, the industry crash, the economic crash, movies, the s- smart comedies were finished, what I had been doing. And I, I, you know, I sort of floundered around for a couple of years. And then I got a call about, um, they had a they had a script that they didn't like nick at night right which does all the reruns was looking to emulate what tv land had done so the, the sister network on viacom tv land had these um starting with hot in cleveland this thing of sort of re um resuscitating the careers of former sitcom stars in traditional 80s 90s style sitcoms mm-hmm. and hot in cleveland was a great success for them and then they did another three four five you know sort of descending success but nick at night said we should be doing the same but with family oriented shows so that it could you know play for you know the the parent and kid audience but they were showing friends and home improvement and stuff like that at night and, and they could own them and they'd be part of that. So they were trying to start that up and they had a script that they didn't love. They had a, a, a strange work situation where they didn't have a showrunner, but they had a star in Tia Maori from Sister Sister. Mm-hmm. And She's a uh, twin, is she not? She's a twin. Yes, that's was that show was the two twins, and she had they she had sort of you know got her career going as a solo act. She was on something called The Game, um, and and now wanted to come back to multicam, and uh, so they needed me to rewrite and produce the pilot, and it felt creatively like this was going to be a big step backwards, and so I really dragged my feet about taking it, and my wife said, you know, you'll make it fun. You'll find a way to make it fun. And it turned out to be the most fun thing I ever did in the business. And one of the things that I did was, was I got people like Russ. I had just had lunch with Russ like, like three weeks before. And he said, I'm done. I'm not doing any more TV. I don't need to. And I'm, I, you know, I don't like it. And I, and I get the job. And of course, the first call, <laughs> I said, Russ, you're coming back. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I don't want to do this. I said, you'll do it for me. I said, but whatever you want, you want to come for just prep, you know, and this was his dream job was like, you do like eight weeks of figuring out what the show's going to be and writing the first six, eight, 10 scripts, getting them all launched. And Russ hates production. He loves the sitting in the writer's room and figuring it out. He loves going off and writing scripts. I said, come do eight weeks and go away, but help me start all the stories, get it going. And he did. And it was great. And so that was a big thing I did was I got like, these great, great people who didn't really want to do it anymore, who'd come back, you know, for, for a price, including myself. But they knew that with me, like, the, the show, it would be fun. It would be good, you know, and I wouldn't abuse them <laughs> in the way writers get abused. Is writing a script, 
like that for where children are, are are part of it does that change how you look at things i mean obviously it changes i suppose the where you take the humor in some cases but overall does it change anything for you you know i i, I sort of th- th- here's the other thing that was cool is that when i had been in sitcoms before even though sometimes I was writing shows about people with kids. I didn't really have kids or I had babies and I hadn't been through parenting yet. And so there was this wealth of stuff that, you know, there was no real great place for. Um, We were not tasked to do a children's show. We were tasked to do a show about parenting and you needed to keep it PG enough. You know, Um, you wouldn't do the Seinfeld masturbation episode, but, you know, when we were sitting around, Russ and I, our kids went to nursery school together. We were already working together. And probably because of that, we had the kids in the same nursery school. And there was a a little quirk about it that we both found hilarious, which was that, you know, they would have a class bunny, you know, and everybody would take a turn taking them home for the weekend and it would live in the room. So everybody knew the bunny. When the bunny died, they would have a funeral. So this was a way to introduce kids to the concept of death, which is all very healthy. Um, But there was a morning session and an afternoon session. So what they would do is during the break, they dig the bunny up and do a second funeral for the bunny. And this, you know, this just tickled both of us to death. And we ended up doing the dead bunny episode. You know, so you could, this, you know, there there was a perfect example of there was material that we didn't, you know, we we, we had, we didn't have when we were younger writing those shows because we didn't have the kids, but here was a perfect place for it. So we did the episode where Tia takes the bunny, you know, the class bunny home and they accidentally kill it. (laughs) And then, and then come to find out it isn't really dead. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> they, end up, they end up basically the bunny dies like three times. And then, and then she has to, there's a scene where she has to explain, she feels she needs to explain the concept of death to the, you know, the seven-year-old, six-year-old who's sitting there. And Russ wrote this beautiful beauty of a scene where she's, she's taking it so seriously, but he in a classic little kid way is asking just his own different questions. Like, you know, like she's trying to explain bunny heaven (laughs) to, you know, and he starts asking about like, if all the animals have heaven, you know, like, is there a tiger heaven, (laughs) you know, and in the tiger heaven, are there bunnies in tiger heaven? <laughs> no. <laughs> then what do they eat? <laughs> you know? And 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 I had the great idea to to tell this kid. We had wonderful kids on that show too. And I, I had the great idea to tell the kid, you know what? Let me give you milk and cookies, and just pay attention to the milk and cookies. Don't look at her. You know, just you're more interested in that. And it's it's a gem. I mean, it's as good as anything we did on Sybil. We were winning awards for. You know, oh, it just I was in the. If, if that scene is on YouTube somewhere, I'll have to go check it out. They, they're all. I'll find it. I'll send it to where you, I know where you can. You know, buy them for ninety nine cents or something like that. Yeah. Like it's on like yeah. iTunes or something. But yeah. but you know, we did we did a half a dozen episodes that were as good as anything I ever did in TV. Yeah, I mean, like weird little place because you know why were they doing what, Nick what and gets the awards versus what doesn't i mean everything that seems in some ways is arbitrary obviously there's there's so much great stuff up here there's a lot of real crappy stuff down here but 
you still have to pick from the great stuff too. And yeah. And then there are, you know, there are corners of TV that are fancy, right? I mean, if, if you do a show on HBO, even if it's not great, it's going to seem like it's a fancy of show. Of course. Yeah. You know? And if you, like that. if you do it, you know, a show on Nick at night, <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I would have agents come up to me and go, this could be on a network. You know, yeah. Well, why shouldn't it be? I mean, you know how good the people are who are writing this, you know, right. and, and they, but they didn't and great actors. And, yeah. they, you know, but, yeah, that's interesting. So you uh, then went into writing books. So you have these detective stories and you sent me uh, the the. Um, your, it would be the the most recent, I'm assuming. It was. I, it was the first one. It, that was oh, the, the first, first in the one. series. Okay. Last looks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, I loved it. First of oh, all. Oh, thank you. I loved it so much, and it's funny because on the on the inside thing, or maybe it was on the back cover, it said a mix between Tim Dorsey and Carl Heisen, both authors I love very much. And uh, so I had to hurry up and read it because I was at my brother's in Seattle. And I thought, oh, my dad is going to love this. So I, did, I read it real fast so I could give it to my dad to read. So now he's reading it. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Thank yeah. you. But it's great. It Thank would, you. What put you into that direction? Well, okay. So in the same, it, I guess, so all those years that I was writing movies, they were all sort of high-end comedies or dramas with some comedy to it, right? And then... I've directed that movie and I was in this sort of, you know, like I say, the business was in this kind of nuclear winter. And for some reason, three of the first five jobs I got when I had to, when I came back and had to hustle a little bit, you know, because, because in the, in the, in the, in the movie heyday for me, I would get sent 10 or 20 things, offers for everyone I had time to do. It was, mm. it was great. And now all of a sudden, after 20 years of being in demand, it was like, uh, what do I do? Where is a place You're for off, me? You know, off Broadway. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I would now. It's off, off, off Ventura Boulevard is where <laughs> I was, and it was that was rough. That third off in Ventura Boulevard oh, was man. really rough. But um, I guess the first one was, uh, and so because the movies were dying too. So now these big movie producers all of a sudden didn't have their careers either in the same way. So, and they wanted to get into TV, which was booming. I, I had made the big step to go away from TV and go to the big screen and spent 10 years doing that only to find that that dried up and now everybody was rushing back to TV, except I hardly knew anybody in that business anymore. You know, just they, I, I knew a small handful and they were all now running networks, which was great if you got to a certain point. So, and, and we'll get to one of those in a sec. Because, uh, you know, I would have these big movie producers who would go, how do I get into TV? Who do I even know in TV? Oh, I know Howard Gould. That's a, and they'd call me with an idea, which means, you know, would you spend two months working something up and then come have a meeting with me and then we'll go see and see if we can sell it? <laughs> you know, so it's putting all the work on you. So I was always hot enough to get a lot of those calls. <laughs> That that's not a job offer, actually. That's like, right. just would you do some free work and, and then get something else? But one really smart producer, Oscar winning major producer calls me up and says, you know, with a, a 5% of an idea, he says to me, what would it look like if you and I did a TV show about a woman detective? That was all he said, because I, I guess I was thought of as writing good women characters for whatever reason. So 
we ended up selling it to a cable, you know, basic cable thing. And I wrote it and, and I really had a good time. I mean, it was like a Rockford Files-ish kind of tone, you know, where it was, it was a, a detective story. It was about a woman with a kid, former cop, who's driving around in her minivan, carpooling and stuff and solving a crime. And, um, and I just, I liked that I could write a story with a little more meat than back when I was doing the sitcom things. This was before Instant Mom, by the way. This was between my, my flamed out movie and, <laughs> and coming back and doing Instant Mom. And I thought, okay, I, you know, this is great because I can do some comedy wrapped around a real thing. So it didn't go, uh, we ended up selling it because um, an executive I used to know back when I was hot was now running the small cable station. So it's channel. So they, they bought it. She got fired before I turned it in. And the new people said, this is pretty low concept. This mom with the minivan, you know, this is not a, and so I said, you know, I, I consciously was thinking I'd like to do another detective, but I'd really like a, a, a you know, a, something that's a higher concept kind of character. Cause that's what I'm going to need to sell it. And did you ever hear the story of stuff? The movie you stuff? No, it, oh. it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a video. It's like a 15-minute animated video. It's about 10, 12 years old called The Story of Stuff. It's oh. brilliant. One of my oh, kids gave it to me. You should check this. You would like oh, well. this, I think. Okay. You should check this out. It's, oh. it's, this, it's this delightful but unsettling little animated piece about how we're completely destroying the planet's resources in service of a planned consumerism, which has the effect of just making us more and more and more unhappy and feel like we need more and more and more stuff. And so we just deforest the planet faster and faster mm-hmm. in service mm-hmm. of this. And it just hit me. And again, it was, it was at the time of the crash, the economic crash, the career crash, all of this at the same time. We're living in this big house in Encino, where, which we we're slowly filling up with unnecessary stuff and thinking about downsizing because our kids are about to go to college and, you know, and just living in a house that fits us better and, and less economic pressure, you know, as, as the business was so uncertain. And somehow this just hit me to where I was watching this like three times a day. <laughs> I just got obsessed with the story of stuff. And I started thinking, well, what about, and I started getting rid of my stuff because I knew we were going to want to move. And I realized I got rid of half of what I owned like that. I had wow. no problem getting rid of it. Did you get down to a hundred? <laughs> no. So I, well, to share with the people here. So I, I, th- there is a thing as I started researching this minimalism, where there are people who actually try to get down to 100 things. Like your shirt's a thing, your bowl is a thing, you know. And I thought that'd be an interesting detective because that's like what happens if somebody tries to give him a business card, you know, then that's an issue. And I thought that there's a source of comedy. It's a really specific guy. It felt very timely. And uh, just as I had that idea and just knew I wanted to do something with it, I get a call from this big TV producer saying, what can we do together? And he and I went out to a couple of big networks with it. We go to CBS and they actually applauded. The pitch was so good. I never had this in my whole career. They applauded. And then three days later, they passed. What? (laughs) 
And then they remade it some other way. <laughs> <laughs> because they said at CBS, this was 10 years ago, they said at CBS, we do police, we don't do private eyes. No. And I thought, I know nothing about TV. And I just threw it in a drawer. And I'm, well, I'm on to the next thing, whatever the next job was. And then about a year and a half later, my favorite movie producer calls me and says, he has a new little business um, to finance development of indie scripts that he was in partnership with a successful art house kind of director and a rich woman who was bankrolling this, who had just won an Oscar, I think, for a documentary and now wanted to get into scripted. And they said, we'd love you to write something for us. If you happen to have, we think you would be great writing a detective movie with comedy. If you have any such idea lying around, we'd love for you to do that. And, uh, and I went, well, I don't have anything like that. And then like the next day I went, oh, wait a minute, what about Waldo? What about the thing I tried to pitch for CBS? So I sort of bullshitted my way through a couple of phone calls with those guys. And they, they don't like when I say it this way, but it's what happened. They basically gave me a creative blank check stapled to a very small actual check. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that was enough of an excuse to sit down and write this thing. And it was very, very hard because I, I really wanted to write, now that you've read it, you'll, you'll know what I mean when I say this. I really wanted to write something that behaved like a classic noir, mm-hmm. right? But was it also does. funny. Yeah, and it is. And so yeah. you get to that thing, so you just build it like a noir, you know, and you're, you get to that thing where you go, okay, now I have the scene where the three guys are going to come and beat them up and tell them to stay off the case. You've seen that 50 times. How do I make that funny? You know, and in this case, it was the, the, the three sort of, you know, yeah. white teenagers who wanted to be black and talk right. like Snoop, you know, and right. all that stuff. Right. And, and I, I fought my way through a draft and it was like 18 different tones. It just didn't feel like it. And I just did what I do. And I just kept doing pass after pass after pass until finally it worked. And I went, geez, this is really pretty good. And this producer who I've worked with more than any producer in my career read it and he said, this is the best thing he ever wrote. And we thought, okay, we're going to get this made. And right away, we got um, Owen Wilson wanted to do it and a director. Totally see him doing that. Yeah. So we thought, off to the races. And then that fell through. And then it was a different director. And then he made me screw it up. And then he took it to rewrite himself but then he never did any of the work. And then it was Jim Carrey. And then and, and that didn't, he was preoccupied with something else. And, you know, it was just one of those many scripts that just has all of these almost lives. My whole career is this, right? It's why I've done all of this stuff. But if you look at my IMDb page, you go, what has this guy been doing all of this time? Like between simple and instant mom or whatever. And I, there just was a thing. I was finishing instant mom. And I, I, so I had taken this thing that sh- seemed like a creative step backwards, but turned out to be super fun and reasonably lucrative. You know, I made a nice amount of money for two, three years and sort of that monkey was off my back. And I thought, uh, okay, I'm going to try and write a couple of things that are more ambitious, which is always the mistake that I make that <laughs> instead of keep doing what I'm doing where I'm making money, I go, what's going to be the most interesting thing I could do? And I had this feeling that, um, I didn't want this one just to disappear into the ether and just sit on a shelf until everyone forgets about it. And I just happened to notice there are tons of detective books out there. And I thought, 
you know, why don't I just try reverse adapting this and see how it goes? And I, and this, I know something about you is bringing this out to me. I don't normally talk about this. My dad had passed away too. And I am not a big detective mystery reader, but he was. And I think that there's something there, that some something happened in the few months, and he and I were very close, that something happened in that few months that subconsciously pushed me in that direction, let me put it that way. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to try and do this. But I did it under a pen name first, because there were so many mystery books out there, but a lot of them were lousy when I started reading them. And I figured, I've never written prose since I was a teenager, I, you know, this may be terrible. And I was afraid that it would ruin whatever career I had in Hollywood to have this crappy book out there. So I wrote the first two thirds of it. Actually, I wrote the first chapter and gave it to my wife. And I said, should I keep going? <laughs> and she said, oh, definitely. And then I wrote the first seven chapters and I gave it to two friends who had written novels. And if they had said, stop, I'm sure I would have, because I was totally insecure still, but they said, no, keep going. And then I got two thirds of the way through and I, I, and I, I went over it till I felt it was, you know, I would go over each chapter till it was really good. Like I'm, when I'm writing a movie script or TV script, I just blast through it as fast as I can, bad as I have to, and then keep going over it. With this, I kept doing each chapter until I thought it was as good as I could. And then I, I had um, 20 chapters or so, about two thirds of it, and I got some job that I knew I had to set it aside. And I thought, now, though, there were new attachments to the movie. There was now an actor and there was stuff. And I thought, or maybe it was, this was even the Jim Carrey time. And I thought, you know, maybe off of that attachment and two thirds of a book, maybe I could even sell it now and then get paid to finish it. Um, and I gave it to my movie agent. I said, do you have a book department? I figured they did WME. And, and he said, yeah, I have a guy I like there a lot. And a month later, I got the call you'd ever want to get. I, I mean, this is the head of the book department at WME saying, I've been trying to figure out who the hell you are because I don't believe this is your first book. And I figured this is a pen name or something, you know. And, and uh, he said, we're going to sell this. And probably to a big publisher. And not for a fortune, but I, I think somebody's going to want this. And he said, but I'd finish it first. We'll do better if you finish it. So I did, and he sold it right away. I mean, I never had anything go that easily in my entire career. But he, wow. he said, I'm sending it out, and we're going to sell it in three and a half weeks. I thought, who knows you're going to sell well, something is, in three and a half weeks? Great. I mean, I can imagine being a publisher reading that and thinking, I'm, what? Where did this guy come from? <laughs> For sure. It was fun, funny. It had a couple good twists. The character uh, Waldo is hilarious. Um, yeah, it was great. I really loved it. Oh, thank I you. read a lot, and, oh. and I really enjoyed it. For thank sure. Thank you so yeah, much. So the, the next one is in the same. Below the line is in the same. Yes. Series. Yeah. Yeah. So the second one is that, and we made the movie. We made yeah. the movie last year. Yeah. With it ended up being Charlie Hunnam, who's wonderful, and Mel Gibson as Alistair. Oh, so uh, really? You can oh, see that now, right? Yeah, now I can see it actually. <laughs> wow! So, uh, for for those listening, what it's a, a, about is um, a a big, big Hollywood star who's a blackout drunk uh, and belligerent. 
and kind of a dig <laughs> and, at times, but also and very a much and yeah, yeah. hang on his, his moments. Yeah, and and who uh, in a blackout trunk may or may not have killed his wife. Yeah, and and God bless him, Mel, and my producer and his agent because they all sort of came up with this idea for him to do this, and and his his agent came to us and said this would be perfect, and. Uh, you know, Mel really wanted to do it, so I mean, we made it cheap. So he had to work for less than he ever does. Now, did he? Big... Did he go to Australia? Did he use his his own accent, or did he go to English accent? He went to English accent. He did. Okay. I mean, in, when you're just hanging out with him, he has an American accent. He doesn't actually. I somehow expected him to sound he Australian. Have an Australian accent? No. What? No, I think he mostly grew up here. I think he mostly grew up close to where I did. Actually. Now my mind is blown. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. I just but it, yeah, split between Australia and, and, and New York. That's wild. Um, he's so great in it. He's really great fun. in it. Yeah. And it's out. Yeah. It's, is it on? It's not out yet. Oh, it's, it's not out. Uh, yeah. So, so this whole year has been like one... You're a music person. It's like been a hold. It's an affirmata. I, keep I mean, thinking, I'm also a writer. Year. So it's like the whole, yeah. everything. And I was at Second City in the conservatory program. And I just finished the program when everything, <sighs> I was finishing up the program. Um, we had to do the last two levels of the conservatory on Zoom. In was, Chicago or here? Uh, LA, here, mm -hmm. here. So that was surreal. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of, and I just, got to LA it's not like I've been here very long so the whole oh, thing I didn't realize that oh, yeah so the whole thing has just been wacky 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 yeah. yeah well that's what happened with the movie so this was supposed to be the year where we were going to go to Toronto or Cannes or something with it and they they you know the the way they sold it was you know they sent out a link to the buyers and oh. so now they're in negotiations and you know, I heard a, I heard a rumor about where it's getting sold, but you know it'll come out sometime next year. But who knows if there'll be people going to theaters? This could just there, be you, when everything goes back. You know, when the vaccine is out, people are going to lose their mind. There's going to be bacchanals in the street. It's going to be <laughs> it's going to be Caligula to your left, and I mean it's going to be nuts. <laughs> but 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 is there any room for detective movies in that? Oh, uh, back of course. Off? That's the question. You, you got some sex in there. It'll be good. <laughs> So let's sure. say it'll be out. It'll be out in twenty one. Okay. I don't. I have no idea if they'll put it in theaters or they'll do straight to video, like a lot of big things are now. Do you feel you like know? you're going to keep writing, Waldo? Especially in detective, they just keep coming out. Do you think you'll do that, or do you think you'll play around with it? I have a third one, and it, like with everything else, it's sort of been a little bit on hold because mm. it's sort of you know, for me and my agent and my publisher, to be honest, I think we all sort of want to see what's happening with the movie before. So ah. I had just finished that right before all of this too. So everything's wow. just, it's kind of weird. It's been a weird year. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It's been a weird year. All right. How can people find you? What's the best way? <laughs> they listen to your podcast. What's your address? <laughs> <laughs> it's off, off, off Ventura Boulevard. Um, <laughs> they can find me at Howard Michael Gould, G-O-U-L-D dot com. Uh, that's my my website and i'm um, under and that name or variants on twitter and instagram and oh stuff okay like so that you're too. on the social media i'm on no i don't do a lot of facebook i do a little facebook but i i'm on the others i don't like them nobody does social media we just have to do it to keep the word out there yeah yeah you're on twitter yeah 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 <laughs> i'll put something out about this when 
you tell me this is going up good i'll send you and i do a links page on the heyhumanpodcast.com site and uh for every episode that gets a pretty complete things we've talked about and and all and your how to find you and do your books and all that so that'll be there as well great and uh yeah this has been delightful. This is great. This is, I feel like I made a new friend. You did make a new friend. <laughs> You're my first new friend since March. <laughs> Yay. Happy, happy. I love to say to every person that Russ has introduced me to, and he's been lovely about that. Um, from the minute I met him, absolutely open-hearted, open arms, and introducing me to people and being just so lovely. And, yeah. um, and every person I meet through him has that same gooey feeling, that good... Uh lovely feeling so yay i'm excited and we will <laughs> all go great. have coffee or wine or something when this ridiculous. absolutely yeah. absolutely i'll look forward to that thank oh, you thank so much you. for having me on this this was this was lovely it's been my pleasure and everybody read the books uh they're great it's, it's that last looks which why i still you know last looks because of the video and she turns to look behind her i was like where does the last looks is it so because he seems to be looking away right when he gets clobbered or like, uh, you know, you want to know something? It was originally uh, Waldo as a movie. It was Waldo as a book. It was going to be Waldo's woods and both the publisher and ultimately the, the movie production company, the salespeople said, you can't take something out with Waldo in it. People are going to be confused that it's where's Waldo, Waldo. or something. Yeah. So at, at the very last minute, Dutton said to me, um, we need a new title. And I wanted something that would be, uh, you know, you mentioned Hyacinth and that, that um, you know, that, that, that was my favorite review, that one that says it's Hyacinth and, and Tim Dorsey, and then yeah. says, and then says, but they're built like Michael Connolly, which yeah. was, it was like, it totally got exactly what I was trying to do, you know, right? Yeah. But I wanted something that had some fun, but sustainable. So I, it hit me movie terms you know, or Hollywood terms. So Got below it. the line, last looks. Makes sense. The, yeah. And yeah. I've, you know, I'm not going to say what the third one is because it's not sold yet um, okay. or not announced, I should say. So, um, yeah, but but last looks and, and because he sees Lorena before she disappears, you know, he has two women disappear on him in the course yeah. of it. So that plus the, yeah, it just, yeah. it felt okay. noirish. Like That's what I wanted. It was these movie turns that sounded out of context, sounded noirish. Yeah. And Last Look sounds like that, but it's a little sly and because honestly, it's got the other sound to it. I could see these performed as plays. I could, as I was reading the book, <laughs> it, it was funny. And I thought, wow, this really, this could be done as a play easily to me, at least. Because there's mind. a lot of talk. There's more talk in the books than, in, than there's room for in the movie, funnily. Oh, yeah. I, there's just something about the feel of it. Maybe, maybe because it's that noir gumshoe type thing, it's just it, sort of like, um, you know, the play uh, Something's Afoot. No. Oh, it's fantastic. Something's Afoot. I'm writing that down, too. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I really loved it, at least. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, was, I'm excited. I'm excited to read the next one and then the next one after that. So <laughs> well, thank you so yeah. much. Howard, thank you. This has been a real pleasure, honestly. And maybe I'll see you on the Sunday night Zooms uh, yes. with the group. Yes, that'd be great. Yeah. Do you do that every week? Uh, I try to. Um, I've been traveling a little bit recently, so, uh, but now I think everybody's sort of put for a while, you know, so... Yes. Well, I'll try and do that. I'll try. And, that was fun. That was I only did one of these so far, but that was fun. 
Yeah, they're, they're, that whole group is a kick in the pants. So, do you know them from in person? Do you were you hanging met, out with them in yes, the in the his in the Sunday time. night at the yeah mm-hmm, yeah uh, I got to do it for a couple months before everything shut down. So I uh, there was a handful of them that I got to hang out with in person. Russ has been trying to to, to pull me into that for a long time. Sunday night's been sort of traditionally our family get together everyone sort of gathers here so that hasn't been that convenient but um i think things are changing now so maybe i'll when when we have when we do saturdays with them i'll do sundays with you okay good it's a really it's it's a great group of people and uh, do you know gary donzig uh i met him once or twice through russ briefly lovely man and uh i'm excited to be able to go visit him at his place that's going to be on my list as soon as we get to he's at um, new mexico new mexico yeah yeah He's neighbors with um, Shirley McLean. Oh, really? And good friends of hers. I'd love oh, her. That's great. <laughs> Get her on the show. I know. I would love that. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, you too. So much. Take care, Susan. Yeah, bye bye. <laughs> Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.